You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you once again about our annual audience survey. Every year, we conduct an audience survey to learn more about you, to get your feedback, and to help shape Revision Path for the future. So to take the survey, just go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. It only takes about five minutes or so to complete, and it would really help us out a lot. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey will close at midnight Eastern time on May 1st, and we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Will Miner, Senior Director of UX at 2U in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. All right, so um, my name's Will Miner. Um, I am the Senior Director of User Experience at a company called 2U. Um, so for those of you that don't know what 2U is, um, and a lot of people get it confused with the, the band U2, but um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a really good way to get your resume uh, not looked at if you spell, spell the company's name wrong. Oh. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, so 2U is an education technology company. Um, we got started in around, I think, 2008. And it was started by a couple of guys that were uh, kind of veterans of just the education space. A lot of them came from the Princeton Review. Um, and back in 2008, there was a lot of companies, or there was a lot of universities, rather, that you know saw that education was moving online, um, but really wanted to do it in you know kind of in the opposite of the for-profit space, right? They really wanted to do high-quality degrees. Um, they didn't want to diminish their brand. Uh, but they still kind of wanted to bring their degrees online. So uh, these universities, though, you know, didn't have a lot of the technical expertise um, to make that happen. So Two You, as a company, kind of emerged to partner with these universities to bring their degrees online. So for the past, I guess, yeah, ten plus years, that's what we've been doing. So we have partnerships with you know uh, schools like USC, uh, Yale, Georgetown, University of California, Berkeley. Um, NYU, like places all over the United States, many, many, many brands that you've heard of. Um, and so I joined in 2014, um, actually as an individual contributor designer. Um, and really, really quickly, um, I got promoted into actually running the team. So for the past, you know, almost five years now, um, I've been leading design and research for 2U, uh, you know, I guess for the, for this, for the software technology. Nice. Yeah. How many how many users right now does two you um, support? Um, that's a really good question. So we actually, it's funny we we don't call them users. They're actually like they're literally students and faculty uh, at okay. these schools. And I think I mean we're over like twenty to thirty thousand at this point. Um, wow. So that's that's you know how many students that we have like enrolled in our programs or in in the programs that we partner with. You know, I think it's so interesting how you know more education, particularly traditional education, that you know, big venerable institutions have started to move online. I think at first it was just in the way of doing maybe an online course or something like that, but then partnering 
you know, with companies like to you, you know, really moving all of that curriculum and everything online, I think that's kind of the future yeah. right now where education is going. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we, we joke about it here, but it's, we feel that, you know, education is kind of taking a similar arc to online dating. You know, if maybe, seriously, <laughs> like in the, in the 90s, maybe if you had told somebody, it's like, oh, I met my significant other online. They might have looked at you funny. or been like, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, but today, like, I don't know anybody who doesn't online date in some capacity. Um, yeah. Like I met my fiance on uh, Bumble. And I think <laughs> education online is it's slower because, you know, education is always always moves a little bit slower, higher education especially. Um, but it's it's kind of getting to the point where like, there's things that just make sense to do online, right? Like in college, I sat in gigantic, you know, 300 person lectures and I, that could have very, very, very easily and probably preferably been a video. Uh, so mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is kind of find the places and find, especially the, the degrees that make sense to do online that we can do online well. And in, in a lot of cases, we can do better online than would happen on campus. Uh, what are some of those degrees? Are they mostly tech-related degrees? No, they're all over the place. Um, so we do have some tech-related degrees. So like our program or our partnership at UC Berkeley um, is a data science degree. Um, but we actually, a lot of kind of our bread and butter as a company right now um, is education and social work degrees. Um, so we have a really big program at USC. Um, we have a big program um, at Simmons College in Boston. Um, we have uh, we also have a number of nursing programs. So we have a nursing program at Georgetown. So it's 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 really all over the place. Nice. What is a typical day like for you at TU? I'm really curious to kind of know what design looks like at a company like that. Yeah. So. We, our technology department, um, which is, is which you know, in terms of the company's headcount, is uh, probably only like twenty percent of us. So we have a lot of other people in a lot of different service roles, but um, the technology department, you know, I I think runs like a lot of you know uh, traditional product um, software product companies, right? Um, so we have product managers, we have product designers, we have UX researchers, we have business analysts, we have engineers. Um, so, you know, if you've worked in a tech company in the last, you know, five, 10 years, it should feel pretty familiar. We have stand up every day. Um, we have design review. We have, uh, you know, a chapter meeting. We have retros. Um, I think kind of specifically to me, um, my day is just meetings now, um, and I, I say I say that like kind of <laughs> ironically, but it's I actually do really like it. Um, so you know, I probably start the day going to a stand up or dropping in on a stand up that one of my teams is in. Um, we have our own kind of separate design sync, which happens like around like eleven, which you know I'll pop into. Um, I'll go out to lunch with somebody um, in the afternoon. You know, we'll have you know a, a road mapping meeting or you know a steering committee meeting that I'll be a part of. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of all over the place and, you know, I, I kind of go where I'm needed. Um, but you know, as a whole, it runs kind of like, you know, your, your traditional kind of tech shop. Yeah. I'm the, the head of media here at glitch and that's probably the biggest change from what my work days used to be like. Like it's pretty much all meetings now for the most yeah. part. <laughs> I, I look at my calendar. I'm like, I've got one, one-on-ones I've got catch-up meetings. I've got meetings with this team. And I mean, I have some time in between to kind of get things done, but I'm finding now it's a lot of 
a lot of meetings, a lot of delegating. I'm still kind of getting used to it. I'll be, I'll be completely honest. Yeah. There. Yeah. It takes, <laughs> I mean, it takes some time. Um, there's meetings that I really like having, like, you know, I running brainstorming meetings, running, you know, sketching meetings. We do design sprints from time to time. Um, those are so much fun to run. Uh, but then there's other meetings where you're like, you know, budgeting it's, I, I do it, but it's not fun for me. Um, yeah. I just think what are some of the meetings that I have? Uh, yeah, I think probably budgeting and that kind of stuff is probably the, my least favorite thing, but, uh, yeah, it's, you, you get used to it. I've been doing this for a couple of years. Like I think <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people, um, like I was reading an article in Hacker News the other day about, you know, somebody talking about the transition from, um, going you know, from being an individual contributor engineer to managing engineers. And, you know, and it was a huge, huge, huge thread of people just like complaining about how terrible it is and like how they miss coding and all this other stuff. And mm-hmm. it's exactly the same for design. Um, you know, when you, when you're an individual contributor designer, like there's nothing better than like getting in, getting your coffee, sitting down, opening up sketch and just like cranking out some stuff. Yeah. Um, that's where you really like derive a lot of your, value as a as a designer and then when you switch to being a manager you kind of have to give that up um and it's it's typically pretty painful it's pretty painful for me do you do anything on the side to kind of still keep that design muscle flexed in a way oh yeah um i think you kind of have to um or maybe maybe you don't have to but i i have to uh so i do a whole bunch of like random stuff like nothing because it is inherently my leisure time like i let all of my design bad habits come out right so i'll start projects and i won't finish them um i'll pick up stuff that you know uh i worked on a month ago and started again i'll i uh i actually do a fair amount of programming um on the side so i i I end up building a lot of like random applications that never see the light of day um okay i uh you know photography painting um I always have this dream of getting in, in college. I took a couple classes on uh, woodworking and I just have like, I live in New York, so I just do not have the space for it. Um, but you know, my dream one day is to get back into woodworking a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of how I scratch the itch. Um, if you also, if you talk to a lot of design managers, they, they scratch that itch by getting really, really, really good at putting together PowerPoint decks. Um, <laughs> seriously, like that's that, that, like when I have a presentation, I'm like, I like crack my knuckles and I'm like, all right, here we go. Let's do this thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you get to do it where you can. Oh my God. That was a shot to the heart. Cause that's, that's me right now. Yeah. <laughs> Putting together decks. I'm like, Oh boy, I got to, yeah. I get to put a one page together. Yeah. I get to put something together. I get to kind of. <laughs> have a chance to kind of flex that design muscle again. So yeah. I feel yeah. you there. Let's talk about teams. Now, as you mentioned, you're senior director yeah. um, of UX at 2U. You lead, how many teams do you lead? So I lead, I have 13 designers um, that we kind of, so the UX works sort of in a matrix capacity. Um, we have product managers who own obviously individual products and we kind of loan out slash assign the designers to a product manager or to a project. So I don't actually like the team that I'm managing. Um, like I don't actually own any products. Okay. I'm just kind of responsible for hiring designers, mentoring designers, um, and making sure everybody's kind of playing nice and working together um, on the individual project. But I guess if I were to break that up into teams, there's probably three kind of dis- discrete groups on my on the UX team. Okay. Yeah, we've had um, Asia Ho, who you probably know. She's from she's uh, 
a designer, a UX designer to you. Yeah, Asia used to work for me. Asia is great. Yeah. Um, but to kind of go back on Teams, I'm really curious to learn more about this because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the head of media here at Glitch. We're starting to build our team right now. And so I would love to kind of, you know, just pick your brain a little bit about what is it like, what's your process, I guess, with building a team starting from zero? Like, what do you uh, take into consideration? Yeah, so it's 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 actually easy for me to do this maybe in hindsight because I got very, I don't know, maybe this happens a lot in tech, but I joined to you in, I'm going to say it was June 2014. And I was looking back through my email and there's an email like saying like, welcome to your 45 day, like sign up for your 45 day check-in right with HR. Mm -hmm. And then I saw another email three days later being like, congratulations on your promotion to senior director. (laughs) So basically within 45 days, I got put in charge of managing the whole team. So to put it kind of bluntly, like I was totally thrown into management. Um, so mm-hmm. all the decisions that I made were very kind of in the in the moment things, and I, I don't think I really approach it with a ton of strategy. But kind of looking back, um, there's a, there's a couple of things. One of the most important things um, about basically starting a team from scratch is really you, right? Um, like the team is going to become an extension of yourself, um, for better or for worse. Like, and you know, as much as we try to cut out bias, like it's it's we're humans it's inevitably going to break through. Um, so you're inherently probably going to start by hiring people that you like. Um, like I, I can't imagine, you know, people literally hiring people that they don't like. So you're probably going to hire people that like that you like. Um, so they're probably in some capacity going to be similar to you. So um, be conscious of that and be and understand that like, you know, all of the good habits that you have and all of the bad habits that you have and all the good personality traits that you have and probably some of the bad personality traits that you have, um, you're very likely to sort of replicate those in the people that you hire. Hmm. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of like think about that, be aware of it, and at least in some capacity, like um, defend against it and, you know, how you present the team, how you look for people, um, and maybe maybe how you interview folks. Um, so that would be the first one. I think after that, like the next one, next most important thing is like the first person you hire, right? Um, they're going to set the tone for everybody else that you know joins the team. Because if you think about like your your traditional interview process, they're going to meet you. They're going to meet maybe some other folks that aren't on your team, and they're definitely going to meet the other people that are on your team. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you hire this first person, like that is that's you kind of telegraphing to any candidates. Like this is the type of person that is on this team. This is what this team is about. Um, this is, this is like your peer, right? So, um, you know, making sure that that first person, you know, shares the same values as you, um, speaks well about the team, um, kind of has the skills that, you know, you maybe want to replicate in a new person. I think those are really important things. That's so interesting. You mentioned that about how the team is an extension of you. Um, it's something that really, as I was doing my interview process, I'm not, I'm hopefully I'm not giving away any sort of secret sauce by saying any of this, but uh, certainly, yeah, you do want to make sure that the people that you bring on are folks that you'd like. And I try to be objective to also make sure that they can also really do the job well. 
Um, actually, my first hire ended up being two people, which kind of threw me a, <laughs> for a loop a little bit because I was like, oh, I, I've got more than, than one person yeah. now. So um, making sure that they can kind of work well together, they play well off each other and make sure that I'm, you know, hopefully serving both of them well also uh, is, is kind of key. But yeah, I see what you mean about how the next they kind of set the tone mm-hmm. because you want to make sure that, of course, that they can work together, but also you don't want to. You don't want to rock the boat, I guess. You know, you don't want to bring someone on that might be able to do the job well, but then they clash with everyone else because then that's 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 an expensive mistake to make. Yes. Yeah, something that uh, I think I read really early on is that um, as a manager, you know, hiring is literally the most important thing that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because hiring well makes either will make or break the team right? Like that's, that's, that is probably the riskiest part of running the team because like, really like you don't really get to know what a person is like the three, maybe hour long conversations you have with them. Like, think about that. Like Mm -hmm. if you, if we were to like make any other sort of decision based off three, one hour conversations, because you're going to spend like 40 hours with this person every single week, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, so it's it's definitely a challenge for sure. Uh, one thing that I saw as I was kind of going through, you know, your website, of course, learning more about you. And I think this kind of also plays well into teams is this concept about a user manual. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me how you stumbled across that? I didn't stumble across it. Somebody on my team stumbled across it, stumbled, okay. stumbled across it. And I, I showed up to one of our team meetings and she was like, we're, everybody, we're doing this. So uh, we uh, went down and filled it out. And uh, it was I was actually pretty skeptical of it when I first did it, uh-huh. um, but it was um, it was like pretty game changing game changing for me in terms of just like how I understood people to perceive me and also just like putting to paper things that I really cared about. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the user manuals, I just kind of came across it. Yeah, there's there's a part in there in your user manual mm-hmm. that I read that I really liked, uh, which was about how people about what people misunderstand about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say people mistake my stoicism for indifference and attention and judginess. People mistake my introversion for hostility. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so important to kind of put out there because oftentimes we can be misunderstood in the workplace, you know, for qualities that could easily be, get misattributed to things we can't control, like being a black man. Yeah, can't control that. Nope. You know, that, that's how you that's how you show up to work yep. every day. Yep. And there may be certain just you know ways about you that are your personality that people could easily just kind of misattribute to you because because you're a black guy. You know what no, I mean? No, I, I totally know what you mean. I mean, like, I don't know. I'm pre- pretty sure every black man has experienced this. But yeah, like you're, you know, I'm I'm six foot one, so I and mean, I'm not like a small person. And I'm conscious about, you know, scaring people on the street if I walk too close or if it's dark out, right? So, um, you know, my stoicism, you know, might come across in a work setting as me not caring or me kind of being checked out. So, like, that's that's something mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm always, always, always conscious of. Yeah, I started doing uh, one, one-on-ones with my team and I kind of heavily borrowed from the, the one-on-one concept from Laura Hogan about like asking them like what makes them grumpy, mm-hmm. what are kind of the things I need to be aware about with yeah. your your working style and your working preferences because uh what's different with the way I'm working with my team is that we're remote. Yeah. So they're in New York City, I'm in Atlanta. Yeah. 
So we're communicating through, you know, Slack and Google Hangouts and Zoom and such. And I was actually up there the first week that they started. So they were able to, you know, we were able to kind of work in person together. But the default mode is remote. So that kind of adds another sort of layer of complexity to it because we're not seeing each other really every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there has to be a large level of trust there. Well, there is a large level of trust to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And of course, they trust me to make sure that I'm setting them up uh, for success. That's actually something we haven't even ever broached yet is uh, remote teams. Um, Cause that's, that's one of the things that, you know, as we're, we're growing as a company really, really, really quickly. And um, New York, I think is just for a lot of reasons is, isn't probably a sustainable place for us to be forever. Like we'll always have office here, but we need to, you know, just grow into other geographies. Um, and that's, I think, kind of one of the next challenges for the team is like, how do we pivot this culture, which is, you know, very focused on getting in the same room, whipping out a whiteboard, hallway conversations. How do you pivot that into a, you know, a, a remote inclusive organization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we, you know, we're, we have we have offices in Cape Town, South Africa. We're going to have an office in Denver. We have offices in California, uh, but we don't have any designers there yet. And that's, you know, something that we're going to have to figure out. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting challenge. I mean, with here at Glitch, I think we're about half remote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot I think pretty much all of the leads are remote with with maybe one or two would be an exception being in New York. So it's it's an interesting challenge, definitely. I think what has to happen above everything, of course, is just active communication. We have like a a gradient of communication in our employee handbook which is available online so people can check it out as to sort of what the the modes are of how we communicate to make sure that we're always kind of staying in check with each other or staying in touch with each other because for some people that start at a place like this and they're working remotely it may be their first ever remote work experience they're used to being in an office seeing someone every day being able to check in and it's like now you're working from home and you have to exercise a large amount of Mm self-discipline to focus on the work at hand. And sometimes people can do that. Sometimes maybe they have to go to like a co-working space or just somewhere else that's not, you know, their apartment or what have you, mm-hmm. their apartment, their house or something. So it can be a big challenge, but communication I think definitely is key and making sure that you have different modes set up. So people can know that just because you're online doesn't necessarily mean that you are available, um, that you may be heads now working on something, or if you put something out there, for review, maybe we can get to it right away. Maybe we won't. Like it's it's a delicate balancing act, I think, and it's not something that uh, I think comes easily. It certainly takes a lot of work to kind of accomplish that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we we constantly are. I mean, maybe a lot of a lot of design teams suffer from this, but uh, our our tooling, you know, whether it be communication, whether it be design, is is changing every six months. Um, so. It's uh, and it also just the norms on those tools, right? Like, mm-hmm. we institu- we instituted a no at channel rule, right? In the in the U- in our UX channel or our UX private channel, um, and like people are really strict about that. Like, you'll get your hand slapped if you <laughs> at channel the whole team, um, anymore. So, yeah, that that stuff is is uh, it's a challenge for sure. But I think like, and we have we have teams actually at to you, um, that are fully remote, um. And it's it, it seems to have served them served them really well. Like I so I run 
our UX organization, but in our marketing um, org, we have like a more traditional, like I call them quote unquote creative team mm-hmm. um, who, uh, you know, they have a creative director and, you know, she has a whole bunch of um, like entitled graphic designers um, and uh, copywriters that report to her. Um, and they're, I think, completely remote. Um, and it's really interesting, like, you know, every once in a while I'll go like drop into their, to their Slack channel and see just how they're working together. Um, and they, they're making, they're making it happen. Like, I think it's definitely, you know, in, in this market where, uh, hiring really good design talent is just always a challenge. Um, it's a really kind of, it's, it's a good kind of lever to have in your back pocket if, if you need to pull it. How do you ensure that you're keeping diversity in mind when you're building teams? So how do I keep diversity in mind? I think, I mean, the first step is to keep it in mind. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> I, I think um, because hiring is so difficult, um, you kind of have to have a certain amount of grit um, and perseverance to actually build a diverse team. Um, like if, if your goal and like, you know, and also let me, let me, be, let me be clear that like, I'm not building a diverse team for diversity's sake, right? Like, or just, just, just to say I have a diverse team. Like, there's a lot of value specifically to our business to having a diverse team. Um, our students are very diverse. Um, they come from all over the United States, all races, creeds, whatever. Um, it's important for the team that is researching and designing for that population to, in some capacity, you know, like represent that population. Um, and I think you know, in a lot of ways, maybe share some of their experiences. So, um, for that's, that is my business reason for having a diverse team. I also just think it makes it a better workplace, um, Mm -hmm. to have a diverse team, but in terms of keeping it in mind, yeah, it's, it's, it's being thoughtful about it. Right. I know with my team, I was intentional in like, I want to build a diverse team and I'm going to, you know, really actively push my recruiting team, seek out, tap my network to find people that are diverse and get them into the pipeline. Um, and that's, I think that's, that was kind of the the biggest thing for me is just like being intentional about it. Now, one thing, of course, when we talk about diversity, you know, we're talking about racial diversity, gender diversity, et cetera. (laughs) Um, you heading up UX, I think there's a lot of also diversity just within that profession of UX. Of course, you've got the huge rise of UX designers, which I think has come up over the past five to seven years, but then there are a lot of other kind of UX positions that are cropping up that I'm hearing about. One in particular being UX researchers. Mm-hmm. And we've had some UX researchers on the show. We've had uh, Melissa Smith over at Google. We've had Jordan Green, Shaw Struthers, just to name a mm-hmm. few. And it seems like this is another position that has been on the rise. How do you work with UX researchers uh, within your team? UX research, they how I would describe what they do. So they do kind of two things in our team. Um, they there's there's an exploratory aspect of their work and there's a tactical aspect of their work. So I'll explain what that means. Um, exploratory means that we have a really kind of sprawling business that does a lot of different things. And if you if you talk to like our investors, we, a lot of times we're just we're described as tech enabled services, right? Um, where we have a service that is enabled by technology. Um, so there's typically a person that works with to you 
and we have built technology, you know, both for the user and for the employee to you to kind of facilitate that relationship and facilitate that service. Um, we have tons of these different services. So from a product like understanding perspective or from a user perspective, we have tons of blind spots in terms of like what it's like, um, for instance, to uh, be placed in a hospital when you're getting your master's degree in nursing, right? Um, we have blind spots in terms of, you know, in this one degree, like we have 35 plus degrees at this point, like in this one kind of degree that nobody's really thinking about right now, um, how is the admissions process being facilitated? What is it like to be a, a student kind of going through that process? Um, so we have UX researchers going out really just like uncovering those blind spots for us as a product organization. And that's um, a combination of just like talking to the people at the company to do that work. Uh, it is, you know, obviously speaking, you know, just doing interviews, doing contextual inquiries with folks that, you know, with students and faculty that are in those roles or in those programs. Um, and then what they do is they bring back those insights, kind of bundle them up, and we present them to our product organization as like this this is an area that is ripe for a product, you know, opportunity, right? Um, and then it'll be on the product management team to kind of figure out like how do we how do we service that need or how do we solve that problem? So that's the exploratory side. Um, the tactical side is there's a lot more collaboration with designers, and tactical really means just like usability testing. <laughs> um, so you know, when we have a product that is in development or in design, uh, the UX researcher will you know pair with the designer. Uh, to either you know run the usability testing process themselves, or you know help recruit students and faculty, or you know maybe just you know guide the designer through testing you know his or her design. I think it's and like what I'd say too is the reason you know research is a part of UX in the design team specifically is like I think there's a lot of really good uh, knowledge sharing that happens when you have these people that are you know out in the field collecting insights, talking to students. And faculty um, kind of constantly kind of percolating those insights back to the UX team, even if it doesn't directly affect their product. Um, it's helping to kind of build empathy and um, understanding with, with the rest of the design team. How do you include accessibility as a part of that design process? Yeah. So as an education company, accessibility is it's, we're both legally required to do it, um, but also mm -hmm. kind of morally required to do it. Right. So, um, it's, it's in, it's a huge, really important part of what we do. Um, so accessibility kind of works its way th throughout our process, um, kind of on the exploratory side of things. Um, we have, you know, researchers, um, we actually have people on the accessibility team that do this kind of full time now, but they're just going out into the, the into the community, um, into the, you know, people with, you know, disabilities community, um, talking to them, understanding their needs, um, seeing kind of what are the opportunities for, you know, building, you know, software that would, you know, would, would assist them. Um, these folks are also typically like experts in like, assistive technology. So this is like screen readers, zoom text type stuff. Uh, we have, we have a designer on our team who's huge, huge, huge evangelist for um, accessibility. So he's, you know, constantly on the lookout for patterns that were, or, you know, design system components that we're building, um, making sure that, you know, they're hitting all the, you know, WCAG, 2.0 guidelines, um, but also just making sure they, they make logical sense from an accessibility perspective. Um, so, you know, we're doing reviews. That's something that we bring up in design, you know, crit. Um, 
we've we've we do trainings on accessibility probably once a quarter with the whole team. Um, and then you know on the engineering side of things, um, those those same trainings are happening for the engineers, um, but also you know we're we're doing kind of QA um, once something you know is actually built to make sure it you know uh, syncs up correctly. Um, is intelligible to somebody, you know, using assistive technology. Um, and then once it's released, we get feedback and roll it back into the product development cycle. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's, it, it, it really affects the entire process for us. Yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty iterative process. I'm really excited. I mean, I'm excited to hear that it involves engineers too, oh, yeah. because so often when you hear about accessibility, it's strictly from a design perspective, which, I mean, I guess when you think about it, of course, engineers have to be a part of that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I mean they they're they're building the thing, so if they yeah, if they exactly. don't if they don't get it right, it's it's not going to be accessible at all. Uh, yeah, it's not just about yeah. certain color matching things. It's also can a screen reader go through it, you know, properly? Yeah, I mean, is is a heading structure yeah. right? Is the is our links properly, you know, set up? Do images have alt text? Like, it's all that stuff is very developer intensive. So we spent a good bit of time talking about your work at 2U, which I think is amazing. But also, I want to shift to just talking about you, Will Miner, as the person. Yeah. Um, when did you know that this was what you wanted to do for a living? It took a really, really long time. Um, and I, so yeah, let me let me go way back. Um, so I, when I was growing up, I was a creative kid, but I never really ever considered like a creative profession as something that I could do. Um, my, my father, I guess is, was, um, he's retired now, but he's, he was an architect by training and by profession. So he's, you know, I grew up, he had all these, you know, different architecture books and design books and all this kind of stuff. And I would page through them and I always thought they were super cool. Um, and he, you know, he's a creative guy, so I was always really exposed to that, but I don't know, maybe a lot of, you know, other black folks could relate to this, but my father was just like, you are not going into architecture. You can do, <laughs> you can do biology, you can do engineering preferably like, interesting. yeah. So they definitely were trying to push me into, um, way more STEM things. Hmm. Uh, like I remember my, my, my father saying, he's like, we're, there is no way your mother and I are going to like help you with, uh, college if you get a degree in architecture like do not get a degree in architecture so um wow yeah uh, where'd that come from i think i think he just like i mean like i don't know if you've interviewed architects but like architectures it's a it's a hard industry you know like it's uh people like architects don't get hired in the way that they were i think like you know 40 years ago um it's, it's definitely changed a lot but anyways so i always had that in the back of my head um and something that so like I said, I was always creative though, and I would end up, you know, weirdly like not weirdly, but like applying just like design, and I didn't know it at the time, to a lot of the different hobbies that I was in. So like this is like I don't know other people share this experience, but like I remember playing video games, right? And like I spent so much time in the like customization areas of every single game that I played, right? So like uh-huh. I played The Sims growing up. I don't think I ever actually like played with the characters in the Sims. I spent my entire time like building houses in the Sims. Um, 
yeah, I would build the houses in The Sims. Uh, I played like Gran Turismo, and I would spend all the time like customizing the cars. Um, and then one of the hobbies I had kind of in high school, um, I was really into biology. And I got really into just like gardening and plants. Um, like I had, it was crazy. I had, we had a deck at our house and I just have so many different plants growing in the back of the house. And so, you know, naive 17 year old Will Minor was like, I like plants. Let's go get a degree in plant science. So um, mm -hmm. I applied to Cornell. I got in in plant science, which was, you know, thinking back, it was kind of a crazy major to be a part of it. I was like, this sounds like a good idea. And I got there and the first semester, um, you know, I made a friend who, her name was Carla and she was in the design program. She was in the interior design program and we became friends. We were hanging out and like, I was seeing like the stuff that she was doing. It's in class versus the stuff that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't actually like plants. You just like, you know, like bonsai and you like horticulture and you like the aesthetics of plants. You don't actually like growing plants. <laughs> um, so I started taking classes in the design major at Cornell. And by like the end of freshman year, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I switched over. Um, frankly, with just knowing that I like design more than I like plant science. So I didn't really have a career in mind at the, at the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and like when I was in college, you know, you, your, your relatives ask you like, what are you going to do with design? Like, that's weird. And, and I would like, you know, tell them like, oh, I'm going to become a lawyer or something like that was, that was my like way to, way to end the conversation about that. But, um, so I did that up until like, I really didn't start thinking about the jobs until like junior year of college. Mm -hmm. And I had a bunch of random internships, like not related to design. And by senior year, uh, I was like, all right, like we, we got to get a job. So I actually started looking for jobs my senior year. And one of the things I, I guess I got lucky in that I, I, one, I realized that all the jobs that I wanted to get at the time that, you know, were related to my major actually required a master's degree. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I was a design major, but I had a concentration in something called human factors and ergonomics, which is, oh yeah, I'm familiar yeah, with which that. Is, which is like the precursors uh, to UX in a lot of ways. So I was looking for like human factors ergonomics jobs and they were like master's degree minimum. So I was like, all right, need to get a master's degree. Um, luckily my program had a, like a plus one year where you could stay for an extra year and get a master's degree. So I was like, perfect. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, stay for this extra year, get a master's degree. Um, so then my kind of job search senior year switched from you know, looking for full-time jobs, looking for internships. And uh, it's interesting, like looking back at the crossroads that you, you know, you, you encounter about like, I, my job could have been this or my job could have been that. So when I applied for internships, I got two callbacks. I interviewed at two places. I interviewed at Boeing for an ergonomics job. So like literally walking the floor of a Boeing factory in Seattle and making sure that like people weren't, you know, hurting themselves. Um, or I got a job as a human factors engineer at Intel, which was going to be essentially a UX researcher, um, you know, helping to research some of the products they were building internally. Um, needless to say, I got the Intel job and did not get the Boeing job. And that's kind of the first time that I realized like, oh, okay, like this is a thing that I can do. Um, mm -hmm. 
And yeah, I went out to move to Oregon for the summer, um, did a whole bunch of usability tests, you know, worked with a, probably like one of my favorite bosses and names Faith McCary um, on her team. She's like a principal engineer now at Intel and uh, learned a ton about research, um, ethnographic research, usability testing, um, came back to school to, to get my master's and uh, the woman who, not, not Faith, but another woman who was actually my manager called me and was like, hey, we got an open position starting next June. Do you want it? I was like, let's do it. So that kind of launched me into it. Um, so I guess to answer your question, when did I first know? Um, I think I first <laughs> knew when they called me and they offered me a job <laughs> to, to be a human vectors engineer. Um, Cause that was the first time that it felt real. Like I, before that, I just, there wasn't, I didn't know anybody else mm-hmm. um, in my friend group or in my family or in my network that was going into this industry. I just kind of, you know, it, it seemed like something that was there and I, Frankly, I'm really happy and lucky that I made it here because I, I I love it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like it's it's uh it's a field that you are really passionate about and that you've certainly put a lot of thought into, not just kind of your role in it, but also how you can like mentor your team yeah. and, and bring other people into it as well. Uh you talked about a master's. You also have an MBA uh from the University of North Carolina. Why did you decide to get an MBA and not say an MFA or something like that. Yeah, so so not yet. I'm almost done. I have one more semester. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yeah. I mean, knock on wood. Yeah. You know, knock it's coming. coming. It's coming. Um, so why did I get an MBA? Uh, the so the the really simple reason why I get an MBA is that to you, um, one of the amazing benefits that they give as a company is you can take any of the master's degrees. Um, that we partner with for free okay. or they, they reimburse you for the tuition. Um, so nice. of course I was going to take advantage of that, but, um, <laughs> but here's what I say is like, yes, you can take advantage of it, but like getting a master's degree is not a joke. <laughs> like it is, Oh, it's not, it not at a all. lot of work. So oh, I, yeah. it, it wasn't something that I, that I entered in kind of casually. Um, I think the reason that I, that I got it was actually there's there's besides it being free there's twofold. Um one was I'm the I was I was and still am the head of UX at our company. So, you know, you always read about like don't trust a product manager who doesn't use their product, right? Like this was me using our product. Um and I and I made sure when I did it like I'm going to be immersed in this, right? Like I didn't take any shortcuts. I just like, I went through the the exact funnel that a student would go through. Um, I applied the way a student would. I took all the classes the way a student would. Like I, I really have experienced what it means to be a student in our programs firsthand. And I have um, like, you, you don't like, you can say you have empathy, but until you really do that, you know, exam at 9am on a Sunday when you want to do anything else, uh, you have mm-hmm. not felt what it's like to be a student in one of our programs. Um, so that was the first reason. The second reason um, why an MBA specifically is, I think, especially at my level, um, and maybe a lot of other design leaders can kind of empathize, empathize with this. Um, people like to keep designers in a box. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you the amount of times where I've been told by like, you know, business, quote unquote, business people that, like don't don't worry about that. Like just don't worry about the numbers. Like just you know just just focus on the design. You know like don't don't worry about the constraints, mm-hmm. right? 
And I think, you know, one design is about understanding the constraints and, you know, designing within them, right? So obviously I, I do want to know the numbers. I do want to know like if this design decision is going to make, you know, this thing cost a lot more money or if it's going to save us a lot of money. Like I also want credit for that, right? Um, so I want to understand kind of the business side of, you know, the products that we're producing. Um, and also I just kind of wanted a seat at the table, right? Like I want, you know, I, I want to be able to, you know, look at a balance sheet and understand what it means. I, I want to understand, you know, why our company, you know, we to you as a publicly traded company, um, being an MBA and taking corporate finance has explained so many of the things that we do, um, just even down to the tactical, like, um, why do I have to help with CapEx, right? Like, and it's, it's short for capital expenditure, but it's this huge finance thing, which is really important to the accountants in our company and to Wall Street. Mm -hmm. But as a designer, I'm like, I don't know what CapEx is. Like, why why should I care about that? Um, as an MBA, I, I understand why I teach, why I should, why I and the team should care about CapEx. Um, so it's just been a really interesting, um, you know, experience in terms of like learning how our company works, how businesses work. Um, and how I think design fits into that business and how it how it can contribute. Yeah, I, I totally understand the thing about making sure that you kind of have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. uh, there's someone who we had on the show a while back. His name is Douglas Davis. And he's a designer. He's a creative strategist. He's in New York, actually. Um, and he has a book called Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he really tries to preach and let designers know about is that it's not just enough to kind of show up at a company and do like an in-house role or whatever. Um, and, and that's not to say that's not important, but if you want to level up your skills and you want to go further in your career, like you have to consider the business of design. And that includes, like you said, knowing marketing, knowing, you know, finance, mm -hmm. knowing those mm -hmm. things. So you can be able to speak with conviction about design decisions that you might make that it, it basically comes from a place of authority. And less about, I guess, just feeling or anything like that. Hundred percent. Yeah, like, I couldn't agree more. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps? Like someone's listening now through this interview, and they're like, "Man, I'm I'm trying to be where Will is at." What advice <laughs> would you give them? Um, where Will is at? Um, I think a couple of things. One, um, don't say no to things. Like I think there's a I've. Yeah, I read on Twitter like people both both giving that advice and both being like, "That's terrible advice." Like, you should say no to a lot of things, right? Like, saying no to things is what defines you, right? Um, I think for me though, like, what has what has helped me be kind of get to where I am is just being open for new opportunities. Um, like, I'm a really deeply curious person, I think, and just being excited to chase down whatever leads, you know. Uh, present to you and saying yes to things um is is one of the best ways to just get exposed to more opportunities like i think the example of this is like when e even even the job right that i that i got it to you right i came i came as an individual contributor i got the job and i actually to be honest with you like i wasn't i didn't know anything about this company i never heard about it before um i just took it and I said, yes, you know, I was like, oh, let's go do this. We'll see what happens. Like we keep our options, uh, keep our options open. If we want to leave, we leave. Um, so that, that led to me coming to New York, which was kind of the first step. The next one was when they offered me a promotion. Like I had no idea what this was going to be. 
Um, I was actually at the time like interviewing at other companies and I kind of just like blindly said yes to it. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and that, that kind of happened. Um, all of, you know, all the speaking engagements that I've, that I've done or all the writing that I've done or, or things that I've been on, um, you know, I just kind of said yes to them. Like, honestly, like this podcast is a good example. Like you reached out to me and I was like, this seems cool. And I just said, yes, and we're doing it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy that I'm doing it now. Right. Um, so it's, I think just being, being open and being ready to, you know, take, take opportunity, seize opportunities when they're presented to you, I think is really important. And I think also, I think for me too, is, uh, I would, I would call it like lateral thinking. Um, so okay. I, you know, I think in terms of like knowledge, right? Like you can have really deep knowledge in one subject or you can have a lot of knowledge in a lot of different subjects. Um, I am like firmly, I think in the latter category, like I have some, I have, I have deeper than most knowledge in design, but like I am not as a person just like all in on design. Um, like I am not an expert in topography. Um, I do not know. Actually, I do know what a ligature is, but like I, a lot of those terms, like just, I, I don't know about it. Like, actually, I don't really care that much about. But I do have a lot of like horizontal knowledge on a lot of different things, and I think that's where a lot of my value comes from. Is like I can talk to you about to a certain extent topography, but I can also talk to you um, about you know the cap M model for for finance, or I can talk to you about you know how our marketing analytics um, funnel works, right? Um, and I think mm-hmm. you find the value with the intersection of those things, right? You find value in being like, um, I was talking about cap, cap X earlier, right? Like it's a huge pain point for our accounting department. Well, what if you brought a designer in that understood cap X and could help them redesign that process, you know, in a, in a human centered way. Um, we're actually doing that right now. And it's, it's been a really cool project. That's both been really good for our employees, but also saved the company a lot of money. Nice. And so I think like having a lot of broad knowledge so that you can find the intersection of those things is, is, a, is has, has been um, one of my keys to success for sure. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what comes next after head of UX for you? What do you think is the next thing? Yeah. So actually when I, when I wrote that or when I wrote to you about this, um, I was at the beginning of an interview process for a new job and it actually just wrapped up uh on friday and i actually i'm happy to say i got the job so i'm actually oh, I'm, congratulations. Actually, yeah, I'm actually going to be leaving um running the ux team i'm staying at to you um I'm, I'm switching to becoming a general manager for one of our programs um so basically it's an it's an operations role um where I'm going to be responsible for kind of the P&L for an entire uh, degree program. Um, so it is not design. It's not technically not in tech. Um, it is like firmly in the business part or like, quote unquote, the business part of our company, right? Um, the reason that I'm doing this, because um, I, I think someday I do probably want to come back to tech because that is kind of where my where my heart is, but the reason I'm doing it is like as a designer, especially in a company like ours where software is a part of it, but like we are, like I said, we're a tech enabled services company. So the services aspect of it is really important. Um, as a designer though, like you kind of, hopefully you aspire to like design everything, right? You want to design the whole thing. Um, I don't just want to touch technology. I want to under, I want to touch 
how people relate to the technology. I want to touch how people are communicated to about the technology. I want to own kind of that entire customer experience. And from mm-hmm. my kind of vantage point in the UX team, in the technology department, I was always, and our, my team was always going to be barred from kind of breaking out of the box of tech, right? So what I, kind of my mission with this new role is, you know, bringing design to a part of the company that, or bringing a design mindset and a design background to a part of the company that has never had design applied to it before, right? So when you hear like, maybe it's a buzzword of like design-led companies um, or like Mm -hmm. a company like Airbnb, right? Where I think like either CEO or like a couple of the co-founders are like, they were designers. Um, But they're CEOs now and they're like obviously squarely pivoted to business. Like, I think that's, that's in a lot of ways what I'm doing, right? Like Airbnb, their whole DNA is you know, at least, at least from peers on the outside, their whole DNA is about creating these incredible experiences for their customers. Um, and I think that comes from, you know, having a background in design. So I think kind of the next step for me is like, honestly, like breaking out of design and getting to a place where you have even more influence and in, uh, um, I would say yeah, probably even more influence over the entire experience so you can actually design it, right? Like, it's, I think it's it's sort of this like uh, it's 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 kind of ironic, I guess, right? That like in order to really design, you have to lead, you have to stop being a designer. But I think that's the case in a lot of, in a lot of companies. That's pretty profound. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, seriously, yeah. it is. I mean, I mean, of course, you know, like I said before, congratulations on Thank the you. on the new gig. But no, that's very that's very profound about design because that's something that I keep bringing this back to myself. But I mean, I technically don't really design that much anymore. Yeah. I mean, I've been head of media here now uh, at Glitch only for just a few months. But even before then, the the work that I was doing was sort of less discrete design. And I was doing more business development things or I was doing some like sales related things or marketing related things. And now, I mean, we're hiring designers and I'm going to be, uh, you know, managing those designers. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's such an interesting thing. Like, yeah, I, I feel like I'm. I feel like it's designed in a different aspect. You're less about designing a digital or a physical kind of object, but you're, you're designing a team. You're hopefully designing an experience, designing a department. I'm trying to abstract this as much as I can to kind of justify (laughs) that I don't have like design in my title. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, it does feel that, that sort of way. I I liken it. um, This is a really geeky metaphor. I liken it to building like, a team for a role-playing game like you need to have a tank and you need to have a healer and you need to have you know your dps or whatever um so you want to make sure that you know you can't just have a team full of tanks like that's not gonna work like you gotta you gotta balance it out this is not a geeky metaphor i i totally understand i I played (laughs) way too much world of warcraft so i totally get it um yeah no it's it's uh and I don't want to say this is true for every company, but yeah, when, when you're like, think of, you know, any, any designer who works in a tech org that has product managers, like the product manager is the one that like sets up the constraints, right? Like, and if design yeah. is about constraints, um, why wouldn't you want to be in control of those constraints, right? Like that's, that is the constraints are what are going to drive what is possible. Um, so yeah. if you, you know, if you're in a position that you can control those things and define like where, where the guardrails are, um, 
I think that's that is that is a place of like of of true of true maybe not true design, but maybe for me it's true design. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah, so um, two the two best places uh, are Twitter. So this is W G M I N E R is my handle on Twitter, um, or my website, which is uh, William uh, M I N E R. Dot com. So williamminer.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, Will Miner, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on Revision Path. And first of all, just telling kind of a lot about the work that you do at 2U and around UX, but also really just sharing your personal story about how I think it's important for our listeners to know that there's more than just one way to get into design. You don't have to have taken this particular route of Mm -hmm. say going to an art school and then landing at a big company and that sort of thing. You can, that's sort of one of the good things about design. There's many paths into this industry and it's really up to you to kind of determine, you know, the best way for you to succeed. So Mm -hmm. I I think your story certainly uh, illustrates that very well. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. This is awesome, Maurice. Really appreciate it. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Will Miner and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Will and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision path is brought to you by glitch, the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. Check us out today at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14 day free trial. This episode was edited by Keisha T.K. Dutez and produced by Deanna Testa. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really does help spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. You can just search for Revision Path. Oh, and don't forget about our audience survey. There's a lot of stuff to remind y'all about. Uh, Our survey is at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. We really want to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.